years ago when I was coming to faith in Christianity, I guess maybe I had become a Christian but was not yet ready to admit it to myself or anyone else. I was working in Indianapolis and there was a um, a building I used to drive by. It was a, a small strip mall, you know, five or six storefronts. And I don't remember what was in any of them except one of them, uh, which apparently was not in business. So maybe it was attached to one of the other stores or maybe it was just empty and they were filling up the sign above it. But it said John 3.16 above the building. And I don't think they were selling John 3.16 merchandise or anything. I think it was just uh, this this iconic phrase or term, this this shorthand for a part of the passage we just heard. And... Um, by then, I think I had read John 3.16. But if you haven't, um, it's, it's often been described as the gospel in a nutshell or, or the gospel in, in miniature. That this phrase, John 3.16, has kind of taken on a character of its own as a summary of all the good news about Jesus. So, um, the, uh, the, the, the phrase John 3.16 has its own Wikipedia page, and I know that's not hard to create, but it is actually kind of hard to keep something going if the editors decide that it's not newsworthy or, or that it's not worthwhile. So John 3.16 actually has its own Wikipedia page, and I encourage you to, to look at that page and, and read up on John 3.16. It's an interesting verse in itself, but if John 3.16 is an interesting verse, if it is the answer to questions about who Jesus is and what he accomplished, um, there are a lot of questions that surround it. For example, if John 3.16 is the answer, what are we to make of John 3.14, the business with the bronze snake? You know, no one puts John 3.14 on the front of buildings. No one, no one holds that up at football games on a banner. John 3.14, the bronze snake in the wilderness. What are we to make of all of this chapter? This chapter, the, in, the, in the Roman world, they used to talk about how um, all roads lead, lead, led to Rome, that that it was the, the center of this entire network of, of all the Ro- Roman roads, and they all came through Rome. This chapter reminds me of that, that, that there are so many theological questions that come through chapter 3 of John's Gospel. There's questions like the kingdom of God. We're going to hear a little bit about the kingdom of God here. We're also going to hear about eternal life. What are those two words and what do they mean? We're going to hear about... Um, the the salvation, what it means to be saved, what it means to be judged. We're going to hear about the universality and the particularity of salvation. Who gets to be saved and what do they have to do to be saved? We're going to hear about what do you have to do to be saved. We're going to hear about faith versus works. That That all of these concepts kind of connect with this centerpiece of John's good news. John's account of the good news. So um, there are all these questions, and I wonder actually if there's another question that we haven't heard. Because what strikes me when I read this passage is that John um, John tells us that there was a man named Nicodemus who came to Jesus, and he came to speak, and he said, Rabbi, we know that God sent you to teach us. But before he can tell us the answer, or be, before he can give us the question, Jesus tells us an answer. And I, I've wondered, what is that other question that Nicodemus was about to ask before Jesus kind of said, here, I'll, I'll drive this conversation. Um, because there are so many questions, and I don't know if the ones that I have in my mind are the one that Nicodemus had. 
So what I want to do is I want to walk through the first half of this chapter. We're going to be looking at verses 1 through 21 and trying to unpack it because there are so many questions. For those of us who are around during the 70s, maybe we've heard the phrase born again. We remember that kind of caught the cultural imagination for a while. So it's not as alien of a phrase to us as it would have been to Nicodemus. But does that mean we understand it? So what I want to do is walk through the the verses and we'll just kind of unpack them as we go and see what we can make of them. And so it says, there was a man named Nicodemus, and we're going to hear more about him later in John's Gospel, but this is his introduction. And what we find out is he was a Jewish religious leader who was a Pharisee. Uh, The way that the Roman government worked is they basically said, we'll collect the taxes and we'll keep order, but other than that, you're pretty much on your own. Do what you need to do and um, have, have some local government so that all we care about is that we get, you know, you don't, you don't give us any trouble and you give us our taxes. So there was a local Jewish ruling council called the Sanhedrin and uh, Nicodemus was a part of it. But we also read he was a Pharisee. And that, that is, I think, why Jesus answers the question he never gets around to answering, asking the way he does. But he has been convinced. Last week we saw Jesus um, didn't do miracles on command, but he did a bunch of miracles when he was in Jerusalem. And he says, I'm convinced. You know, I saw the miracles and I've seen enough to be convinced. He says, he says, we all know. So my guess is some of the other Pharisees or some of the other leaders uh, felt the same way. We all know that God has sent you to teach us. Your miraculous signs are evidence that God is with you. And instead of waiting to hear what the question is, Jesus answers a question. He says, I tell you the truth, unless you're born again, you cannot see the kingdom of God. And a lot of a lot of Bibles have a footnote. They say born again or born from above, that the, the word can mean anything, uh, e- either of those two things. And whatever he means, it puzzles Nicodemus. Nicodemus says, what do you mean? How can a man go back into his mother's room and be born again? What Jesus is getting at is the idea that that Nicodemus is a Pharisee. Pharisees, uh, today we think of them, you know, we've been conditioned for 2,000 years to think of the Pharisees as the bad guys because we always see them as the other side of an argument with Jesus. So we tend to think of the Pharisees as the bad guys. In the first century, John's readers would have said, I wish I could be as good as the Pharisees because they take their religion really seriously and I don't. So people would have heard this as he was a really top religious person. He took his religion very seriously and he tried really hard. That, and that is basically the problem Jesus is addressing here. There's a difference between taking your religion seriously and trying harder. <coughs> Jesus is saying the you that needs to try harder has to die. And a new you who doesn't have to try harder has to be born in his place. So he says, you need to be reborn. But Nicodemus says, I don't even understand that metaphor, Jesus. Um, how can an old man go back into his mother's womb and be born again? And Jesus says, he repeats himself, no one can enter the kingdom of God without being born of water and the spirit. He says, I'm not talking about physical human reproduction. I'm talking about a spiritual rebirth. He says, humans can reproduce only human life, but the Holy Spirit gives birth to spiritual life. So don't be surprised when I say you must be born again. Jesus says that we have to be born again. But then he introduces this new character. He says the Holy Spirit is involved. That this birth is not a physical birth, but a spiritual rebirth that takes place. 
And then he says something um, that is kind of lost on us because because we're not readers of Greek, but we have a little bit of it. The, the word spirit in Greek is the same as the word wind or air. So he says he says that the the Holy Spirit gives birth to, to spiritual life. So this word spirit or wind has already been introduced. And then he says, um, the wind blows where it wants. The Holy Spirit is like the regular wind. The holy wind is like the regular wind. It goes where it wants. So just as you hear the wind but can't tell where it's coming from or where it's going, you can't explain how people are born of the Spirit. Jesus is saying the Holy Spirit is predictable. I'm sorry, is reliable. Is reliable but not predictable. That, that you can count on it, but you can't predict it. And that ties this back to the previous metaphor. He says, he says that to be born again is to be something that is, that is reliable but unpredictable. Both of my children were delivered by a, a planned cesarean delivery. So um, if you were part of the, the generation that, that, um, that went to the classes and learned the breathing and, and uh, you know, pushing and, and all the rest of the stuff that, that I don't know anything about because I didn't go to those classes because my kids were delivered by scheduled cesarean delivery. But they don't know. What, what you probably learned is they don't know when the baby's going to come, right? They all come eventually, but they don't know why the baby comes today versus yesterday. They, they've got some understanding that there's these certain proteins, that epigenetic factors in the placenta. They have a really good understanding of what happens. They just don't know why it happens. And Jesus is saying, you know, this metaphor stands up even through time. We don't know why the baby is born today instead of yesterday or the day before. That ultimately there are mysteries, that it has its own logic that we cannot dissect. And he says the Holy Spirit is like that, or like the wind. That it's something you can see what it's doing, but you can't see it. So he says, he says this is what the spiritual rebirth is like. And Nicodemus basically says, I don't get your metaphors. How are these things possible? And Jesus says, I have to use metaphors. He says, you're a respected Jewish teacher, yet you don't understand these things. I assure you, we tell you what we know and have seen, and yet you won't believe our testimony. But if you won't believe me when I tell you about earthly things, how can you possibly believe if I tell you about heavenly things? Jesus says, the reason I'm using metaphors is this. Earthly things confuse you. And we understand that, right? Let's suppose you're a geologist. Can a three-pound brain, can your three-pound brain understand why Alaska had an earthquake last week? I mean, Alaska is a big, heavy thing. Can you really get your mind wrapped around Alaska and plate tectonics and the way that the, the geology of the earth works over time? In a sense, you can, but in a sense, you know that you're going to have to lose a lot of the details that ultimately you're going to have a, a geological model in your head that, that helps you understand what happened. But at the same time, you will never understand it completely. And Jesus is saying, if I can't even communicate human ideas, earthly ideas, in a way that you can understand, what is the chance you could understand if I came down from heaven and told you heavenly things? You can't get your head wrapped around earthly things. You need metaphors to do that. So how much more so for heavenly things. 
So he says, no one has gone to heaven and returned except the Son of Man. Um, um, he says, no one has ever gone into he- heaven and returned, but the Son of Man has come down from heaven. And then he uses this odd metaphor. He says, as Jesus, as Moses lifted up the bronze snake on a pole in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, so that everyone who believes in him will have eternal life. Now, this is a puzzle to us because what's up with that building snakes, uh, statues of snakes in the desert? And we heard the story from, from the book of Numbers that the people were quarreling about something. They didn't like their journey and they got, um, they got, a bun- God sent a bunch of poisonous snakes to them. But God also sent a solution to them, which was this, this, uh, a snake that if they looked at this snake that was raised up on the pole, then they could be healed. And to us, it's like, that's just too weird, except it's really not. Let me show you why it's not. Show, show the picture of the ambulance. All right. What is that in the middle of the asterisk? You've all seen it before, right? It's a snake on a stick. This is a symbol that goes way, way back. It's found in ancient cultures all across the, the ancient world, from Rome all the way through the Middle East, that this was the symbol in the ancient world for a doctor is here, um, a medicine man, a healer is here. Jesus is saying, in the same way that they needed healing, you can't just ignore a snake bite and hope it will get better, right? He said they needed a healer. And God was going to provide them the miraculous healing they needed. He says, in the same way, you can't ignore what's wrong with you. You can't try harder your way into the kingdom of God. There has to be a transformation. That just as my first metaphor was, you need a spiritual rebirth, right? And you kind of quibbled with that and said, well, yeah, but that's not really the way birth works. You know, we all know how birth works. And Jesus says, okay, let me give you a different metaphor. You need a doctor. This is not going to get better by itself. You cannot try harder your way to health. You need to see a healer. So Jesus says, you need a healer, but instead of a snake on a pole, you need the Son of Man to be lifted up on a cross so that everyone who believes in him will have eternal life. And then he says, finally, so that's the background, and then finally we get John 3.16. So I'm going to read it. For this is how God loved the world. He gave his one and only son so that everyone who believes in him will not perish, but have eternal life. Let's read that together. For this is how God loved the world. He gave his one and only son so that everyone who believes in him will not perish, but have eternal life. So let's just work our way through this one verse. He says, this is how God loved the world. Nicodemus is a Pharisee. Nicodemus is a Jew. He says God loves Jews. And Jesus says, no, God loves the whole world. What is God's disposition toward the world? God loves the world. Does that mean God is blind? God can't see everything that's wrong with the world? No, but it means that God sees it with perfect clarity and loves it nevertheless. God loves everything in the world, even though he's distressed by some of the things we've done in the world. God loves everyone. And so God sent not a judge, but a Savior. What kind of Savior? His one and only Son. You know, there's people I wouldn't give $5 to. Jesus says, God didn't just give $5. God gave the most precious thing imaginable because He loves us that much. He loves you that much. Whatever the circumstances of your life may indicate, whatever poisonous snakes are crawling around and they're biting you and you think that this is a sign that God hates me. Jesus says, 
No, God loves you. God sees you with perfect clarity. God knows everything you've done wrong. God knows everything you will ever do wrong. And he still loves you. How much? Not $5 worth. He loves you so much he gave his only son for you. Why? So that everyone who believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. And then we're back to believing in him. What does he mean by that? Does he mean you have to, you have to state some article of faith? You have to recite a creed? No, he's saying you either believe that God is going to save you or you don't. You either are going to try harder by yourself or you're going to say God loves me and God will do what is necessary to save me. He says that is the belief you need to have. You either believe that God is at work on this and I can trust God to, to finish what he begins or I can't believe him. I can't trust him. He says that is judgment. It's not that God sits in judgment and says naughty, naughty. He says you've already decided. I don't trust God to fix what's broken in me. And so judgment is not a a positive act that God does, but it is rather the fact that you have refused to be healed, that you refuse to look at the snake on the pole. You refuse to look at Christ on the cross. You refused to be reborn. He says there is no judgment against anyone who believes in him, but anyone who does not believe in him has already been judged for not believing in God's one and only Son. And the judgment is based on this fact. God's light came into the world, but people love the darkness more than the light, for their actions were evil. He says, "He says, you know how this works. There are things you would rather nobody saw you doing. He says, people who do evil prefer the darkness. And I think what he's really getting at here is he's talking to Nicodemus. I mean, he's talking to everybody, but he's saying particularly to Nicodemus, he's saying, Nicodemus, why did you come here at night? Because you're not convinced that what you're doing is the right thing. You don't think that consulting Jesus might be the right thing. You're concerned that what you really need to do is keep on with what you've been doing, to try harder and harder and harder, and someday, if you try hard enough, you will see the kingdom of God. And he says, that's why you came by night, because you're afraid you're breaking that rule by coming to me. And he says, in fact, if you didn't come to me, you would be judged. Ultimately, salvation is here. It is available to everyone, but not everyone will receive it. So he says, those who do what is right come into the light so others can see that they're doing what God wants. Now, the next verse tells us that that Jesus and his disciples left. They left Jerusalem, leaving Nicodemus to think this over. Now, we're going to hear from Nicodemus again. We're going to read about him in chapter 19, but he also appears in chapter 17. Nicodemus has had some time to think this through and figure out what he's going to do with what Jesus told him. And that's really the question for us. What are we going to do with it? Jesus says, Salvation is there. It's there to be accepted or not. And stand over here in the corner. Um, that, that salvation is there to be accepted or not. That it is available to all, but not all will receive it. And he's inviting us to decide which one of those is going to apply to us. So what are you doing? Are you like Nicodemus? Do you think that if you try harder that you can conquer 
that particular sin, the one that keeps you in the dark, the one you don't want anybody else to know about? Or do you trust God to take care of it? Because Jesus says the Holy Spirit is working on it. He says the Holy Spirit will give you a new birth, but not on your schedule. In fact, if you go to the Holy Spirit and say, I have a sin here in this area, I'm really greedy. And the Holy Spirit may say, that's like sin number seven. I'll deal with the first six. That we cannot predict what the Holy Spirit will do. But the Holy Spirit is reliable, as reliable as a baby being born. It will happen. We just don't know what schedule. So let me ask you again, what is your strategy? Are you going to try harder to get into the kingdom of heaven? Because how's that working out for you? You know, where are you at? 40%? 60%? What would your family say? Would they, would they give the same answer? Jesus says you can have it as a gift. The Holy Spirit will give you a new spiritual life if you just receive it. There's two implications of this passage as far as I can tell. The first is that God loves the world. That if you think you're beyond the pale, that, that you think what you did or what was done to you puts you outside God's grace, the answer is no. Jesus says in this most memorable verse, God so loved the world. There's nobody in the world that he didn't die to save. That means you. It means your kids. It means your grandkids, the one, you know, the one who's running wild. There's nobody in the world that Jesus didn't die to save. It means your parents. The one who's dying and bitter. Jesus died to save them. It means the homeless addict passed out on the street corner. There's nobody in the world that Jesus didn't die to save. But it also means it's never too late because the Holy Spirit is not predictable. That we can always be of good hope, even when all all of our human intuition tells us that this is a lost cause, this person will never change, that it's too late for me, that if God was going to do anything in my life, I would have been able to conquer this sin, that, that I would have been able to put this behind me once and for all. The Holy Spirit is reliable, but he is not predictable. So, what's your strategy for seeing the kingdom of God? Is it to try harder, or is it to trust in Jesus? Let's pray. Loving God, We have heard about your kingdom. We've heard that the kingdom is your reign in the world. In a few moments, we will pray the prayer that your son taught us, the prayer that your kingdom would be done on earth the way it is in heaven. Lord, we want to see your kingdom. We want to have the life of the age to come. We want to have that eternal life that Jesus speaks of. But... Our strategy is to try harder. In our human wisdom, that seems the only way. We must put that sin behind us. We must stop doing that thing. We must quit seeing that person. 
And maybe we need to do those things, Lord. But not as a strategy to see the kingdom. But because you have changed us. And so, Lord, we pray for that. We pray for the coming of the Holy Spirit. We pray for the new birth. And we pray, Lord, that like the wind that we cannot see, you would give us the grace to see the signs of the Holy Spirit's work in us and the people around us. Lord, give us good hope for the people that we care about, knowing that it is never too late. As long as we draw breath, it is never too late for the Holy Spirit to breathe new life into us. We pray all these things through Christ our Lord. Amen.